All right. Well, it's always a, a pleasure for me to come back to Chicago. It's a bit of a homecoming for me. I already uh, went through Evanston today, and, and uh, it's great to see so many people, especially uh, through ministry over the years, and especially through, uh, through TEDS. Uh, when I was an undergrad as well, I was at a free church, and would still be in the free church today, I'm sure, if we had more free churches in uh, Alabama. But uh, <clears throat> we call them just non-denominational in the South. <clears throat> so uh, we've got an interesting topic. Uh, Bill and I were convinced that we had it. We we're going to have a nice little session of about eight people uh, earlier. But uh, I guess uh, I'm already questioning your judgment, considering the other amazing breakout options that you have. But we have before us an interesting topic, a new evangelicalism, deconstruction, progressive evangelicalism, and neo-fundamentalism. This ought to be interesting. Uh, I, I should pray. Let's, 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 let's pray. Let's seek the Lord's help. God, thank you for the, this, this warm place, warm with uh, fellowship, warm with your love, uh, warm and protected from the elements. I ask God that you would give us insight, clarity, joy, even, and discernment in this particular moment. God, this is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After all the tumult of 2020, the anger and anxiety, I expected Christians to search for hope and healing in 2021. I have never been more wrong. I've never been more wrong. Compared to 2020, that year we will never forget, 2021 really didn't introduce many new challenges. Instead, I, when I looked through my top theology stories I compile every year for the Gospel Coalition, really 2021 was a continuation of 2020, rehearsing many of the previous year's historic, life-changing conflicts. And some of the sharpest evangelical thinkers have sought to explain the sources of our divisions, the cluster of sensibilities on issues all the way from ethnicity to abuse to politics and the pandemic. Kevin DeYoung, writing for the Gospel Coalition, observed four, unique, four groupings of at least Reformed evangelicals. You can decide for yourself if it applies more broadly beyond the Reformed community. And labeled these groups in these four terms. All of them positive in ways that the groups would hopefully identify themselves. The first group, describing them as contrite, people who their posture toward our particular moment is one largely of repentance Think about demands for things like reparations, that we need to make repair for mistakes that Christians have made in the past. Number two, second group, those that Kevin had labeled the compassionate, those who sort of lean in with an empathy, a posture of empathy, and have a, an attitude of wanting to learn about where they may have gone wrong, um, and just wanting to study more, especially of evangelical history. The third group, the careful those who emits many changes of an instinct of being cautious, of cautious and an instinct toward being conservative. And a fourth group, that would be then the courageous, those who, whose posture is one of confrontation, especially toward other Christians, and to denounce others who don't share their views on a wide variety of issues. Um, <clears throat> one of the things Kevin wrote is that people who can affirm the same doctrinal commitments on paper are miles apart in their posture and in their practice. Tell me you haven't seen this among your elders, your leaders, your members. 
Kevin had written this in 2020. He said, I fear in the months and years ahead we will see Christians and churches and gospel movements reshuffling their associations based upon a unity not in shared not in shared Christological and soteriological truths, but in the sameness of our political and cultural instincts. The way I put it, looking back in about the last 15 years, when I began really longer, closer to 17 now, when I began writing about the so-called Young Restless Reformed, it really was a focus primarily on soteriology. It was doctrines of grace. There was a shift some years later toward a focus on ecclesiology, especially as so many of those young pastors had grown up and said, wow, I actually have to do something now and lead a church. How is this supposed to work? And then certainly around 14, Ferguson accelerating dramatically in 16, and then again in 2020, you saw a significant shift toward public theology. And so the same alliances, the same configurations in your own church that might have made a lot of sense 15, 20 years ago don't make much sense now. If you're any, I recently was looking through my Rolodex, virtually, of friends from really since, probably since Trinity, when I started in 2007. And I would estimate about half of my friends uh, from ministry over that time, either not Christians, don't want to talk to me anymore, um, have made other dramatic changes in their lives. Uh, it, was, uh, it was pretty stark. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of names, about, I would guess about 50%. Um, of change there. But what I find so interesting is that you don't just see these divisions inside the church. Um, George Packer is uh, writing in The Atlantic. It was an excerpt from his book, Last Best Hope. What I thought was so interesting is that his description of our divisions in the United States now map perfectly onto Kevin's four categories, which shows you how much of what's happening in the broader world is really what's shaping the terms inside the church right now. Four categories that Packer identifies. The first would be just America. This is Gen Z. These would be people who are pushing for diversity, equity, inclusion, putting a lot of pressure on their workplaces, their schools. That would be the contrite in Kevin's category. You then have the compassionate. That maps onto Packer's category of the smart America. Think the era of President Obama. Think of the people with the degrees. Think of millennials, Gen Z, the people who are in the leadership positions now, largely in corporations and in, in schools. Um, those two groups, a major generational conflict between the two of them. Uh, the one group believing we've achieved this by our own, very diverse, but we've achieved this on our own. The other group saying no, the meritocracy is coming at the expense of true justice. We need to tear it down. Okay, so that's, that's one kind of grouping there. Then the careful maps onto free America. Think essentially the Republican Party, Reagan to Bush, pre-Trump. Uh, so National Review, Weekly Standard, think of publications like that. And then the last group matches pretty well, the courageous matches pretty well onto real America. Think more of President Trump, think earlier to Sarah Palin. One of the dynamics that I find consistently in my ministry at the Gospel Coalition is I can usually decide what sort of issues I'll be facing when talking with a pastor based on where he is located physically. Okay? So with the Gospel Coalition, I will often say that you could go to uh, Chilton County, Alabama. We probably got a lot of folks here from the Midwest. You, you, you know Chilton County if you've come down I-65 on your way to the beach. It's the big peach capital of Alabama. And uh, probably 80 Southern Baptist churches in Clanton or in that surrounding area, not one of them would be remotely friendly to the Gospel Coalition at all. You go to Berkeley, California, you could probably point out five churches like that. 
that would be very friendly and in alliance with the Gospel Coalition. That's my point. A lot of the ge geographical surroundings dictate a lot of the pastoral challenges that we face. And so you know, a lot of what I see right now, the disagreements, is that a lot of pastors who are located in the middle of real America, especially the rural South and the rural Midwest, are in a lot of conflict, maybe themselves, if they did education in a place like Chicago, at a place like Trinity with their own leadership. But then also a lot of those pastors are in conflict with those pastors that are trying to serve in, in other areas. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. You know, we've seen a very high-profile conflict between John MacArthur and Mark Dever, and a lot of that having a lot to do with responses to the pandemic going back to 2020. It's pretty simple to observe that, and I'm sure my friends in Washington, D.C. will back me up on this. If Mark Dever had tried to do what John MacArthur did in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, he wouldn't have a church today. It wouldn't exist. It would, could not exist. The media attention would have been so brutal, and so the political pressure would have been so crushing, he just simply couldn't have a church anymore. It would have been devastating. And so you can, there's a lot of, I think in part, a lot of grace that needs to be shown to pastors who are in vastly different contexts of leadership with their leaders, with themselves, with their family, with their members, these different places. But of course, my overall encouragement and my plea is that we're not bound to those contexts. Ultimately, we, we obey God. Above all, we obey scripture above all. It's our theology that unites us. And when our theology cannot overcome these natural barriers, these worldly barriers, it's the whole world that suffers, not just the church, but it's the whole world. Go with me back to the 1830s. You may not recall this, but many have described the Civil War not as having started in the 1860s, but in the 1830s. When the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and the Baptists all split north and south, really at the height of evangelical influence in American history of the Second Great Awakening. And when they split, there really was no chance for the country to stay together. The Civil War followed. Abraham Lincoln's hero was Kentucky Senator Henry Clay, who said this in 1852, if our religious men cannot live together in peace, what can be expected of us politicians, very few of whom profess to be governed by the great principles of love? I wouldn't go so far as to predict any kind of civil war in our day. David French has offered his um, explanation for how he could see it happening. But much depends, I think, on where the final fault lines are going to form with these four different groups. Here's what I'm trying to describe. So you've heard me describe this spectrum of one, two, three, four, okay? Refer you to Kevin's article. You can find it easily on our site if, if that's helpful for you. Essentially, what the, the big question for me at the Gospel Coalition and the big question that I'm thinking about more broadly is where do the lines end up? If they come down the middle between the one and two and the three and four, I think we have huge problems because that's essentially our political divide today. And our, church will, our churches will essentially simply fall on the different sides of all of the pressure that's being exerted on them by media and by politics. If it comes right in the middle, it's interesting. If You might do an exercise with yourself on this or do an exercise with other leaders in your church. 
because it's like a Rorschach test. What you can do is look, and some people will see it. You know, like there's optical illusions. One, you look at it one way, it looks like this, the other. Some people will look and they'll say, wait a minute, there's not four positions, there's only two. There's this side and there's that side. There's the right side and there's the wrong side. Some people see that. And other people look at it and they see, oh yes, there are four distinct positions, but I see one extreme and another extreme. And I see a group in the middle that's clustering. What I'm saying is, you know, of course, I'm a disciple of Don Carson, so I'm going to advocate for the center-bounded set. Uh, <laughs> I work for the Gospel Coalition. I'm going to argue for a center-bounded set, and I'm going to say that if the Gospel can hold the center, we know it's powerful to save. We know it can. The question is, will we, be, will we obey? Can the Gospel hold us together across some of our disagreements on masking and on vaccines and, and, and on things like that, certainly on racial issues, political issues. Can the gospel hold us together? Can what, can what Jesus has done for us, can, can, that, can that be the basis of a meaningful and lasting unity in a way that doesn't make sense to the world? When every force in the world is trying, and including many forces inside the church, are trying to drag us apart and say, no, 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 it has to be Jesus plus. It has to be Jesus plus this view. It has to be Jesus plus this other view. That's the open question. Will we divide down the middle? And will it then just look like our political parties? And will it look like those 1830s? Or can the gospel hold that center and even begin to inform how we do engage all of these other issues in love? I believe that if our churches can hold that center ground, these churches will point to an everlasting kingdom that refuses to despair over every manufactured and momentary panic or even our own real examples of injustice and unbelief that we see in our everyday. Churches can decry both abuse and abortion at the same time. They can extol both justice and justification. Indeed, they must if they will be faithful to God's revealed word. One of the things Tim Keller has pointed out, I did an interview with him on my uh, podcast, Life and Books and Everything, with, with Kevin DeYoung and Justin Taylor about a year ago. He described that when you look at the progressive evangelical and ex-evangelical movements, kind of broadly known under the categories of deconstruction, there is no evangelistic program. This is not a plan for propagating the gospel. It's a plan for deconstructing the church. Now, again, there's some, I mean, problems that are genuinely being pointed out. That's not the issue here. But the point is there's, the deconstruction isn't coming with a solution. A solution for how to have a purer, better, more gospel-centered church. You also see they have the same problem with the neo-fundamentalist movement that's emerging, consumed with culture war. And um, I think uh, I was speaking at a church in, in South Dakota, back near where I grew up. And it was a Saturday morning, 8 a.m., and cold, <laughs> goes without saying. And uh, there was a car pulling in from Iowa ahead of me to the church. And the bumper sticker said, honk if you love Rush Dooney. I was like, I think I know what I'm in for today. So, I mean, theonomy is seeing quite a significant resurgence, which is coming along the lines of Catholic integralism, an idea that we need to move away from concepts of religious liberty 
and to introduce and move toward, a, a, in some ways, a post-millennial kingdom where their government and religion have been refused, or can re, you know, fused back together in a Christendom model where heresy is then enforced by the power of, and orthodoxy is enforced by the power of the state. Um, the problem here is that, again, this is not an evangelistic program. It is hard to evangelize the neighbor that you've demonized. It is, it way, to, way forward here is a movement of faith and love, not of fear and loathing. They do not lead to a spirit of evangelism. So where in this environment do evangelicals go from here? My first point is going to sound a little bit counterintuitive, but bear with me. I'll try to explain my best. I believe that we need more politics in the church, not less. But it's that we need less partisanship. All right, let me explain. It's a comment I often hear at TGC. Sometimes it is offered in the good and right spirit, and I welcome that. Stick to the gospel. The gospel absolutely has got to be the basis for every single thing we do in the church. The problem is most of the time I hear this comment, it does not come from somebody who sticks to the gospel. It comes from somebody who is consumed by anything but the gospel. It almost always comes from somebody who is far more political, and especially usually from the right wing. What I'm advocating for here by, in a political approach is that we have to disciple people in our church to be able to distinguish between biblical demands and prudential judgments. What I'm advocating for here is freedom of conscience. It's biblical liberty. It's, it's theological triage. Understand what I'm saying here. We have to be able to work through these issues to understand their distinctions. I don't think there is, I don't think there are two ways to talk about abortion, okay? The right way is that abortion is a great evil, perhaps the greatest evil of our time, okay? That's where I'm coming from. I'm unabashed about that. But there are legitimate questions about, okay, are you an abortion abolitionist? Do you believe that every single measure that could limit abortion is, is on its face, completely, you know, a, a compromise, a horrible compromise? And, and women must be jailed even with the death, death penalty if they pursue abortions. Look, the Bible is not going to tell you exactly that. But you have the Southern Baptist Convention that did a resolution last year saying that every incremental effort, including that which has brought Roe v. Wade before the Supreme Court today, every single effort is, 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 an, is an evil compromise. What I'm saying here is we have to, in, in doing more political discipleship, we're helping people to distinguish in a media environment where everything is that gong, breaking news, everything is of this urgent importance, and there's a lack of understanding of, of, what, of what my friends Andy Nacelli and Jonathan Lehman describe as, as these jagged line issues. Now, not everything is this is exactly what Christians have to think when it comes to every issue. That's a partisan framing. That's a partisan framing. That's not a wise, biblical, discerning framing there. A lot of our politics today fall into this category of prudential judgments, not on whether abortion is evil, but on exactly which strategy might be most effective at eradicating that evil. What I advocate for, then, is churches that allow political diversity. Again, I can always, I can picture a church. I visited January 2020 where I, I said a lot of these same things. And one of the members came up to me and said, 
I can't believe how wrong you are. Every single Democrat ever has been pure evil. I mean, I asked people afterward, was like, was this real? It's like, oh, absolutely. We work with the guy. You can't believe how bad it is. But this is a lot of what's being reinforced different places. And again, pick your side. I'm not just picking on one side here. The, the, how, how, how boiled up we've gotten over all of these different prudential judgments have rendered the gospel as if it's completely impotent to be able to bring people together, as if who you watch at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time on cable news is the most determining factor of who you are as a person. That's why I say we have to be more political, because we have to uproot those idols that are keeping people from Christ, even those who claim the name of Christ. If we're, going to, if we're going to be evangelistic, we're going to reach people in our communities. These churches are going to be generationally, ethnically diverse. If, if you want a truly evangelistic church, you know this. You're going, to have, you're going to have to have class diversity, ethnic diversity, generational diversity. Now again, you may be in a small town where there isn't much of that. I come from a place in South Dakota where there wasn't much of that, except on political diversity. My point is... This is a way of illustrating the beauty, the transcendence, the glory of the gospel as an alternative to the kingdoms of this world. That's what we do when we, sh- when we, when we say this is what we read, not Jesus plus. Not Jesus plus, but Jesus glorified. That's what we're aiming for here. I won't go into all the different detail, but this is, there are specific reasons why we have been captured by this incredibly partisan moment. Uh, a lot of what we describe and identify right now as the evangelical movement today is really a function of, of civil rights disappearing as an issue on the national level, which allowed Southern and Northern evangelicals to come together. I, I especially like to say this, I mean, live in the South, of course, and it's been an eye-opening and wonderful experience. But uh, believe it or not, if, I mean, you could look at, give you an example of what this looks like. If you look, going back to 1990, at the largest evangelical seminaries, really the largest seminaries in the country, you're going to see Trinity on that list. You're going to see Fuller on that list. You're going to see Gordon-Conwell. You're going um, to see some liberal seminaries as well. But you look at that list now, it is dominated by Southern Baptists. And to the ex- expense of places like Trinity, and of Fuller especially. It's because in 1976, the only thing conservatives and moderates and liberals agreed on as Southern Baptists is that they weren't evangelicals. I'm not kidding you. Go back, look at Newsweek, 1976. They all agreed we're not evangelicals. Why? Because they'd been divided going all the way back to the Civil War. All the way back to the Civil War, Democrat and Republican, North and South, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, all the, they'd been divided well, that changes when Reagan brings the Republican Party and kind of brings the conservative movement there. Southern Baptist Convention at the exact same time moves in a much more conservative direction theologically and politically, especially in the wake of Roe v. Wade. Civil rights decreases. The sexual revolution increases. The Southern Baptist Convention shifts to the right. And all of a sudden, this new evangelical movement emerges, largely built on a scaffolding of this new Republican Party, that Jerry Falwell personally took so much credit for with Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. Again, I'm giving you a pretty, I'm giving you a pretty, um, 
you know, kind of potted history of this. We could get into it if anybody wants to ask a question about that. But, but there's a reason partisanship is so difficult right now for us. I was meeting uh, a couple days ago with some pastors in Florida, and I, and I mentioned this to them. And uh, it seemed to connect with them of why this moment now is so difficult. I said, uh, you know, let's go back to the categories I mentioned there of smart America and I mentioned there of real America. What's happened here is that the Republican Party has shifted one slot over, okay? So the Republican Party of largely the last 30 years have been the party of smart America and of of this uh, real, not real America, but of, I can't remember which one I said in there, Free America, thank you. All right, so it's those two groups right there. Think about your Main Street, small business owners. Think about big business. Think about military. Okay, that's that Republican Party, that fusion that Ronald Reagan brings together. Well, President Trump completely changes that. He excises the Smart America group, and the Smart America group doesn't have anywhere to go from the Republican Party because the Democrats don't want them. So they're homeless. And he shifts it toward the real America group. And think about why does that matter for us? Because that's the whole media reinforcement that the members of our church are getting nonstop. Those are the messages that are just being pounded into them, that shift. So if you're a pastor that feels like you feel politically, theologically homeless, like what happened? I didn't change, but something changed. It's because this partisan backdrop shapes so much of the conditions of the ministry that you face. And how much more now with social media and its dominant reinforcing of what people are seeing, listening on talk radio and seeing on cable news there. That, that's why this is so difficult. When I said this to these pastors, it just sort of clicked of like, wow, okay. I can kind of see what we're up against. So, wh- so what do we do? What do we do about this? I was talking with Covenant College students last year, and, and, and I usually, it's kind of odd, I'm saying we need more politics but we need more focus on the gospel at the same time. Well, the Covenant College students came back to me and they said, wait a minute, it seems like you're downplaying politics. We care passionately about these issues and we're never going to put up with you know, not caring about political issues and things like that. I said, what? Again, I want to address those issues. It's the partisan framing that is just racking our churches here. So what can we do about this? First, We need to put all of our energies and attention into becoming a prophetic minority in American public life. This is one of the biggest differences between North and South. Years ago, I was talking with a Southern Baptist leader, and I asked about what it was like to be an evangelical student at Princeton. And he said, evangelicals, I can't stand those people. Like, what do you mean? It's like, those are people with Camps Crusade for Christ. You know, if there's some sort of social event happening, and they schedule a social event at the exact same time, and they say, you choose. You choose dancing or you choose Jesus. He's like, I hate that. Where I come from, we are the culture. He was from Texas. We are the culture. One of the things so hard for evangelicals in the South is that they have been the established church of the South forever. This is how they think. Now, Northerners do not have nearly as much of a challenge with this when I'm in those evangelical settings. When I was a student, At Northwestern, you didn't have to tell me that we were a prophetic minority. Well, minority at least. I don't know how prophetic we were. We were just trying to survive. But um, but this is this is what it means. I think I think about with all this partisan framing. I think about I was was helping to launch uh, in the fall TGC Nordic, 
uh, the Gospel Coalition in Nordic countries in Copenhagen and then outside of Amsterdam for TGC Netherlands. And it's amazing how both incomprehending our European brothers and sisters are when it comes to American politics <laughs> and evangelicals, but also how refreshing it is that they're just, as tiny minorities in their country, that they're just getting on with evangelism and discipleship and church in joy. And it was like, yeah, we know. That's why we care about evangelism so much. <laughs> I remember talking with my friend Rebecca McLaughlin, and she said, that's the biggest difference between the European church and the American church. And she said, everybody in the European church knows how to evangelize. That they just know that they have to. It's part of their discipleship there. That's what I mean. We have an opportunity to learn from Christians from Europe, from China, not to mention, of course, that original prophetic minority in American life, the black church, African-Americans. This means then, yes, that I think we need to, to reject any pushes toward a neo-fundamentalist theonomy or a Catholic integralism. Second, this means then we must be unflinchingly loyal to historic biblical orthodoxy. Must be unflinchingly loyal to historic biblical orthodoxy. Without God's word as our authority, we are completely unmoored from ultimate reality. There is no means by which we can be judged and which we can bear proper ecclesial authority as leaders in the church. The, the word is the only way out, both to be able to judge ourselves and to repent where necessary, but also to bear that prophetic witness in a culture that has turned from God in so many different ways. And then I've already said the last point many times to stay focused on evangelism. You are not at war against your neighbors. You've been called to love them. You're not at war against your neighbors. You're fighting a spiritual battle in the power of the Holy Spirit to win them. You can't hate your enemies because our Savior has called us to love them. Because when we were still his enemies, he came and rescued us and made peace with us through the blood of the cross. We're not going to make much progress in evangelism if we're either deconstructing the Bible or if we are demonizing our enemies. We're not going to make much progress in either of those ways. Last point I want to mention then, or second point. Second point and last point, make of that what you will. We need all hands on deck to promote digital discipleship. Think about it this way, friends. In the last 20 years, if you were a well-informed citizen in the United States, you might have had say, 20 sources of news. You'd watch a national and local TV program, newspaper delivery in the morning, maybe even the afternoon, a few magazine subscriptions. You'd forward some emails, maybe with bizarre threats, or at least your grandparents might. You'd tune in during morning and evening commutes to a talk radio station or two. In the last 20 years, that number of sources has expanded from 20 to 200 to 2,000 to 200,000 to 2 million to 200 million to 2 billion and beyond. Every person around the world who can open a Facebook profile, a couple uh, burner Twitter handles, an Instagram account for public, and another one to hide from their parents, and so on. When you stepped into the pulpit as a pastor 20 years ago, you had a knowledge advantage over most members of your church. Knew more about the Bible, more about Christians around the world, history and theology. doesn't mean your congregation would always agree with you, they could read the Bible for themselves, subscribe to Christianity Today. That was the 20th century. 
It required time, money, and effort to know what was happening. It was a curated world. There were gatekeepers like Billy Graham, Carl Henry, Kenneth Conser. Like pastors, these gatekeepers benefited from broad agreement. They benefited from broad agreement. It's how you sell advertisements, how you keep a church together and grow a church. It allows the pastor to focus on study and shepherding with one eye, maybe on the most popular cable news and talk show hosts, and they keep focused on the congregation. Friends, you don't need me to tell you that curated world has largely disappeared. It has largely gone in the last 20 years. The inconspicuous editor has been replaced by the opaque algorithm. And the algorithm knows more about us than any pastor or editor ever could. The algorithm what gives, gives us what we might not even admit that we want. Churches can only give us what they think we need. This is apart from the Holy Spirit's discernment. Compared to 20 years ago, the internet and not the local church now has become the primary place where Christians are formed. Before their leaders ever speak, tell me if you've heard the, if you felt this way, before you ever speak in a church, church members already know what they believe and they expect their leaders to conform or else. No wonder so many church leaders feel like they've lost their footing in the last 22 months. No, matter, no wonder we've seen so much splintering into neo-fundamentalism, progressive evangelicalism, and deconstruction. Because how do you get attention on the algorithm? By rushing to the extremes and by making enemies. The incentives have completely flipped in 20 years. Every incentive before was to push toward consensus, sell advertisements for dishwashers. Now everything is all of your information known to Zuckerberg and Bezos and everybody else, monetized through demonizing one another. That's what is being incentivized now. Every pastor I talk to thinks his situation is unique. Elders resign with accusations of theological drift in your ministry. Younger members leave in frustration because the pastor didn't change his sermon to speak about the latest viral video. Deacons break decades-long friendships after they discover a new favorite YouTube channel. In the aftermath, pastors reflect, what did I do wrong? Did I unintentionally offend someone? Should I develop a new policy for when to revise the pastoral prayer? Did my favorite person to quote from my commentaries really do all the terrible things that podcast suggested? If this is only happening to you, Pastor, it's good to look in the mirror. If it's happening just in the Evangelical Free Church in America, it's good to look at our culture of training leaders. Maybe talk to the dean at TED's. When it's happening in every single church, it's a revolution. It's a revolution. Today we're living in the early days of a revolution of equal scale to the Reformation and printing press, but with an uncertain outcome. Can you imagine Martin Luther on Twitter? <laughs> I can't tell if it would be horrible or wonderful. I can't tell. Pretty sure he wouldn't like me, an old Baptist. Uh, Luther, Luther worried, you know, what Luther worried about was the emperor and he depended on support of the German princes. But, but you as a pastor, as an evangelical pastor and church leader, worry about something else. It's, it's that American voluntarism 
That's what I mean. Elders lead the church, but they lead at the will of the congregation. And you know your congregation, no matter what your system might be of polity, they'll vote one way or another. They'll either vote with their hands or they'll vote with their feet and vote with their checkbooks. The strength of evangelicalism is this popular appeal. That's how those Baptists and Methodists, that's how they grew. Anybody can start a church, didn't need permission from any central authority, spoke the language, the vernacular of the people. Revivals, you look back on them, there was intense criticism of pastors in revival. So that populism, some of that real America, the Second Great Awakening had this dynamic, Baptists and Methodists, they were the real America. They were the frontier pastors. They didn't, they, they weren't, I mean, they weren't about education. They weren't about all that sort of stuff against those stuffy Northeast trained pastors who were a different political party and trained at Yale and Princeton and all those different places. So the challenge of leadership here in, in voluntarism is you can't get ahead of your constituency, at least too far ahead of your constituency. It is populism. It's been a tremendous source of energy and dynamism for evangelicals, but it's also our Achilles heel. It's also our Achilles heel because you don't grow a big church typically by going against the will of the people. You don't typically do it that way. There's a funny line that I was reading recently. It was about the Civil War. It was about the lead up to these divisions. It was about a leader in the middle of a revolution. And the leader yells out, the mob is in the street. I must find out which way they are going. For I am their leader. (laughs) Since 2016, this is what it's often felt like. I don't see evangelical leaders. I see some evangelicals shouting into a void. I see others reconciling themselves to the will of the people, to the mob. And I see many more just going silent, hoping all of this just goes away. Just goes away. You don't typically, as a church in American society, grow If you preach against the sins that are common in your constituency, you grow by preaching against the problems with everyone else's constituencies and outside the church. That's why the great need of digital discipleship in our age is fearing God and not man. It's fearing God and not man. Luther's revolution was was to the praise and glory of God because it was built on the power of God's word. It was built on God's word. There has never been a time, there will never be a time when we need less Bible. It will never be that time. Whether the problem is the left or the right, progressive or fundamentalist, the Bible is our solution. God's word tells us where to go. It's our compass to the true north of God's glory to help us in baptizing the nations and to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. Another thing that I read from a historian of the Civil War, he was saying, how could it be at the moment of greatest influence in the evangelical church in all history that it led to the Civil War, that it countenanced slavery in so many churches? How did this happen? He said this, the fatal flaw in antebellum church leadership was that ecclesiastics, pastors, were less distressed by the evils of human bondage then concerned with the tasks of institutional maintenance. In Birmingham, I'll put it this way, 1963, First Presbyterian Church, members of Martin Luther King's movement showed up 
to integrate a church service. Afterward, the session elders, the elders debated. The pastor said, I can't go against Christian conscience. I have to let them in. One of the leading elders, he was um, CEO of an insurance company that's still around today. It's about a five-minute drive from my house. When I take my son to school, I pass it. He said, to hell with Christian principles. We have to save the church. To hell with Christian principles. We have to save the church. How tempting that is in our own day as well. To simply discard preaching God's word and the demands of Christ, which are good and gracious for all of us, because we're afraid of what it will do to our church. What does it feel like to be an evangelical pastor afraid of preaching God's word to God's people for how you know they may react there? But again, that's the only way out. That's the only hope that we need. It's the only hope that we need. It's not going to come... I just want to encourage you here, in the, and I'm glad in the last 15 years God's raised up the Gospel Coalition to fill some of the voids with digital discipleship. I'm so grateful for that. But look, we're not getting out of this through articles and podcasts that I produce. That's not going to be about this at all. Bill said it as well. All we do is, if we're doing anything right, all we're doing is supporting you. All we're doing is supporting you in local church. Just all the things that we can't do, showing up at that bedside, praying with that couple. I'll just give you two, two pastoral examples to close here. I, I'm in situations all the time where, as an elder in my church, something happens at the Gospel Coalition, somebody will bring that against me. may not have anything to do with me, but it's, you know, it's a convenient thing there to do. But uh, you know, I, I faced a heresy charges in my church. Uh, over this, with somebody who was watching a lot of YouTube videos. When somebody comes at me at the internet like that, you don't know what's going on with them. But in this case, I was that deacon's elder. And so I'm talking with the other elders about it, like, what's going on here? Well, I mean, we learned it was, it was an incredible tragedy in this person's life. We realized we're not dealing with the issues, we're dealing with the person. We're dealing with the person, and we're dealing with the family that are in trouble. Had another situation opposite issue. This person said that the Holy Spirit had abandoned our church in 2020 because we had required masks. Then we had their situation in 2021. We stopped requiring masks for every service. Remember, I'm in Alabama. So, so we, it was a, a friend of mine who said, again, I can't go to a church that is so, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't care about lives. But then as a pastor, you know, it's one thing, it's coming on the internet. I don't know where that person's coming from. But as a pastor, we, we, we could show up at the house. We could sit there, we could ask questions, and we could learn what was really going on. It's a family that had just been suffering tremendously, expending themselves to try to care for people during the pandemic, and it just broke them. You can understand, that's what we need, it is a return and rediscovering of that church, of the local church. Not more, I mean, again, hopefully we'll continue to produce resources that may be helpful to you. But it's, it, it's about you ministering those elements, the body and blood of Christ. It's you ministering and praying for God's people. It's you showing up. It's you, even when you're criticized for things that you didn't say and you didn't do and you didn't even think, somehow looking past that, and still able to love the person 
behind that. That's the only thing I think can get us out of this. Not a bunch of debates online. Well, sure isn't going to be Twitter threads. I'm pretty sure of that. Okay, amen? <laughs> when we reorient toward the local church, the internet revolution can enhance and never supplant the word of God. Another reformation where God's people read and heed his word, I still think could be before us. Another revival. Beautiful thing about revivals. Started studying here with John Woodbridge at TED's. We did a book in 2010 on the history of revivals. The great thing about revivals, by definition, you never see them coming. Otherwise, they wouldn't be revivals. <laughs> so what an opportunity in our day to see God's name praised in our spiritual unity rather than reviled in our man-made division. That's what we pray and hope for. Let's take some questions.